Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. God cannot help you unless you allow God to help you. Many of us could be accused of trying to out-God God. We think we know more than God. We think we can do more than God. We actually believe that what we want and how we want it is better than the way God can bring it to us. In fact, we get so busy doing what we do the way we do it, there is no opportunity for God to get into our lives at all. God is so merciful. God will not fight you. If God did, you would get beat up badly. Most of us could use a divine butt-whipping. Instead, God sits back and waits to be invited into your life. God will let you do whatever you want to do until you realize that God can do it better. If you want to run the show, God will let you. If you want to pull all the strings, that's up to you. If you want to insist that what you are doing is the way it should be done, even when you are not getting anywhere, uh, go right ahead. God will let you run yourself ragged if you choose to do so. Unfortunately, you may not always be aware that you are in God's way. You think you are demonstrating your independence. You think that it's all up to you and that you must do it or it won't get done. God knows better. God knows that God cannot fail. However, God has no need to prove to you what God can do. How do you know when you are in God's way? How do you know when you are running your program rather than allowing God's divine plan to unfold? It's very simple. We're here in the Archbishop's Corner, where Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair is here to help you know when you are in God's way. If you are struggling to make things happen and they are not happening, it's you, not God, running the show. Until today, you may have been directing your own life and attempting to produce your own blessing. Just for today, ask for direction. In the Archbishop's Corner, you can open yourself to God's guidance. It's where you can give up your attachments to having things your way and open yourself up to God's way. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for helping us to see the unfolding of God's divine plan in our lives and helping us trust enough to step aside and let God get into our lives. How are you? Very well. I was going to say very well. I do have a cold, but it's not anything compared to the sufferings of people with COVID and all kinds of other things. Uh, having a cold is not t too great a cross to bear. This is true. Is this one of those airplane colds that you got returning back to, to the States from your trips? Well, what you're referring to, of course, is the fact that we had had a uh, archdiocesan uh, pilgrimage to the Holy Land that was postponed for a couple years because of COVID, offered under the auspices of the uh, Catholic Bible School that is offered as part of uh, our uh, accredited St. Thomas Seminary here at, in, in Hartford. And uh, so we did go on that pilgrimage, and it was a wonderful experience. But just before I uh, got on the plane to come back, I started to get that tickle in the throat, mm. and uh, it did develop into a cold. But like I say, that's nothing compared to 
what some people are suffering. And I'm, I'm very grateful to God that our pilgrimage was blessed with uh, good weather and uh, good health. Nobody has uh, had COVID or anything like that. So uh, we, we did very well for ourselves. That's great. Your plans were a little bit changed because you left early in order to attend the funeral mass of Pope Benedict in Rome. How did that go? Well, very well. Yes, I was thinking if if I, I have to cross the Atlantic to go on this pilgrimage, I would just go uh, uh, two days early and uh, stop in Rome and attend the funeral and then go on and meet our group in Tel Aviv, which I did uh, with uh, Father Gankars, my, my secretary. So we were able to participate in the funeral in Rome, and I was uh, it was a good good thing to do. Anything stand out in your mind in, in terms of, of being there for the funeral mass of Pope Benedict? When I ask you about certain theological questions, you frequently bring up Pope Benedict, so I presume you have a great affection or had a great affection for Pope Benedict. Anything impress you most about the funeral mass? Well, let me first, before the funeral mass, just comment on what you said that Yes, indeed. You know, Pope uh, Benedict uh, Joseph Ratzinger was uh, really a, a towering um, theologian, uh, a great a theologian who brought to bear his mind on uh, the state of theology and church teaching at a very crucial time in history. Uh, he was a very active uh, participant in the theological resourcing of the Second Vatican Council. But in the aftermath of the council, all that happened and the kind of things that have been going on, he's always maintained a very solid theology and one that is is very insightful and I dare say even beautiful. Mm. You know, uh, in his once he was elected pope, well, he's written many books as well. You yeah, know, beautiful yeah. books. Some of them are more heavy theologically; others are not so much so. But when he became Pope, uh, his uh, encyclical letters, his homilies, his weekly audience talks were really very profound and very accessible to people. It was not theology in the sense of a kind of academic theology that for people who had to have a certain background, but he expressed the truths of the Catholic faith magnificently. And, you know, he he always, well, he re-echoed uh, some of the themes of, of previous popes that that, you know, uh, there are two things, uh, truth and love, and that they both have to be present uh, in what we say and do and what we believe, uh, that it's not enough to have just one. Uh, you know, sometimes people say, well, you just, uh, you, you love, uh, love conquers all and it doesn't make any difference what you believe. Or some people might say, well, they maintain the belief, but, but not in a very loving way. Pope Benedict spoke about both truth and love, and he talked about the fact that the truths of the faith are symphonic, you know, like the parts of an orchestra. They all blend together. You can't just rip them one from the other, but they all go together. So uh, those are just some of the th the thoughts I have about uh, the, the towering figure of Pope Benedict as a great teacher of the faith. And uh, so when he... Um, and also the courage that he had in stepping aside when his health just didn't yeah, permit him really true. to do the, the work. Uh, so I was, uh, and I, I knew him uh, from my time in Rome, working in the Curia. Uh, our, I mean, I was only a, a lowly little Monsignor, and he was a Cardinal, so our paths crossed, but not in a, not as uh, in quite the same way. 
but I did uh, have events that I participated in there that he was involved in, and he was a very gentle, amiable, uh, and uh, kindly person. So I went to the funeral. You, I'm giving you a very long answer to the question you asked, what impressed me or what... Uh, I was very pleased to see that uh, the tremendous outpouring of people who came to uh, pray at uh, the body, uh, the fact that St. Peter's Square was full, yeah. that there were a, a very large number of uh, clergy there. It was very, very... Uh, I was very... Uh, I can't say happy to be at a funeral, but I was grateful for the uh, the uh, ability to to participate. To be there. Well, let me step out of line and for a moment and and go to one of the questions that have been submitted because it's regarding this. James from Hamden, for instance, says there has been talk that Pope Benedict XVI will become a saint and most likely a doctor of the Church. What legacy do you think Pope Benedict has left us? Do you think that he will one day be called Doctor of the Church? It won't be surprised in light of what I've just said a few moments ago that yes, I think that he that he was he rose to the level of being a doctor of the church, but and for our listeners to understand, a doctor of the church means someone who is a great teacher of the faith, but and that he certainly hand, was, huh? Yeah, but on the other hand, I think this rush to proclaim uh, saints and doctors upon the death of someone right away can be a little hasty. Um, God knows that I have tremendous admiration for Pope St. John Paul, and he was so exceptional. I can understand why there was this desire to, you know, as the Italians say, santo subito, to to canonize him right away. But I wouldn't want to be in a position, I don't think it's necessarily healthy for the Church that every pope that dies immediately gets canonized. That's never happened in the past uh, and uh, I, I don't think that, uh, I mean, l- let's face it, uh, saints are in heaven. It doesn't make much difference to, to them whether they're canonized or not. It doesn't affect the, the person's eternal destiny. I think you'd have to just set, sit back a little bit and, and with, uh, allow a little time to breathe here. Uh, but in answer to the question, yes, I do think I have every confidence that Pope Benedict uh, is in heaven, you know, yeah. uh, but only God can judge a soul, and we never canonize people like that. We always, funeral mass is a prayer for the repose of their soul. I continue to pray for the repose of the soul of Pope Benedict. I don't just say, well, he's gone straight to heaven and that's that. We we can't be presumptuous. We have to realize that we all need the mercy of God, and any saint would be the first person to say how much they need our prayers. Well, let's talk a little bit about the fact that this day, January 22nd, back in 1973, the Supreme Court legalized abortion throughout the United States in its companion decisions, Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. Since that time, millions of children have lost their lives. Millions of women and families have been wounded by abortion. On June 24th of last year, the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization decision overturned Roe v. Wade. And so we have ended the nearly 50-year nationwide regime of abortion on demand. However, right now, state and federal laws in many instances are still hostile to preborn children. There's still work to be done to protect preborn human life. Your thoughts on this day as, as a day of prayer for the legal protection of unborn children, Archbishop? Well, we certainly need to both work and pray <clears throat> for that to take place, both in our country and around the world. But now the focus of our efforts really 
on the practical level is at the state level where we need, and, and we will, you know, the, the Connecticut Catholic Conference will be organizing another uh, Right to Life rally in, in March, March yeah. uh, later uh, in the year. Yes, uh, we still have to do what we can to ensure this protection. Sadly, here in, in Connecticut, there are those voices that want to make us kind of a center for abortion and a, and a place to encourage people to come for abortions, and that's very sad. Indeed, it's tragic. So we need to still do our, our working and our praying, and uh, I think that uh, having a, the pro-life rally that uh, uh, the Connecticut Catholic Conference and others, because it's not certainly just a Catholic event uh, at the state capitol, I think that's going to be the focus of our efforts. Well, the church has determined that tomorrow, Monday the 23rd, should be a day of prayer for the legal protection of unborn children. Do you have any recommendations as to how we should observe this day, how the everyday Catholic could observe this day? Well, simply by uh, making it the prayer for the day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, there's a, a mass, uh, there are mass prayers for that in the, uh, in the Missal, um, but uh, to take some time to, to offer that prayer. Wednesday of this coming week is the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul. This feast not only celebrates St. Paul, but specifically celebrates his conversion. The three days Paul spent in Damascus after encountering Jesus on the road changed his life. It is said that Paul spread the faith, and through him the church became what it is by nature, universal. Talk for a minute about St. Paul's influence on Christianity, Archbishop. Well, having just returned from the Holy Land, uh, you know, one of the first uh, places we visited was there on the coast, uh, Cesarea Maritima, with its harbor. And, you know, the guide pointed out to us that this is the place where Paul was uh, dragged when he was uh, arrested there in the Holy Land. And it's the place uh, from which he would have departed from that little harbor to take him on his apostolic journeys. Mm. You know, that's the thing about Paul, that he became this missionary who traveled everywhere proclaiming Christ. And in that sense, not only uh, was the effect of spreading the faith, but it became really the unleashing of the gospel, the model of, 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 of going forth as Jesus commanded to make disciples of all nations. And uh, so Paul played a huge role by his strong personality and his great mind and spirit in uh, promoting belief in Christ beyond the, the confines just of, uh, of Israel. For, for people who have not been to the Holy Land, can you maybe, in a few words, let people know what does it do for your faith? You spoke about St. Paul and his presence there. Can you tell us what does it do for one's faith to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land? Well, I think even from the point of view of uh, historical figures of, of history itself, just worldly history, uh, that you know, when you're able to visit places associated with great events or with great people, uh, it evokes their contribution, their memory, and everything else. But of course, with uh, with with our Lord and with the, the Church, uh, these things are not just a remembrance of the past, but they're very much alive. You know, when you celebrate mm-hmm. Mass. Christ is present. And so uh, I think when you go to the Holy Land and make this pilgrimage and you visit these sites, you get a a greater feel for the humanity of Christ, for one thing, 
you can appreciate more that, you know, he is true God and true man, uh, that Jesus really became one like us in all things but sin. And uh, I think, you know, to walk at Capernaum into the ruins of the synagogue where and the town where Jesus spent so much time and where he preached, and you can read in the Gospels what happened in the synagogue in Capernaum. It's kind of a meditation and a prayerful uh, remembrance of something that is very real today as much as ever. Um, so I think it's a, it's a good thing. I, I was struck, you know, by the fact we, we followed the geography of Christ's life, by which I mean that we started the pilgrimage in Galilee and ended in Jerusalem, just mm-hmm. like Jesus' own life, Nazareth to Jerusalem. And it's interesting, you know, uh, Galilee, as you probably know from your uh, travels there, um, I mean, in some cases, it looks like Wisconsin. I mean, it's just yeah. a very green, uh, the Sea of Galilee, this beautiful lake, uh, a lot of uh, crops and and uh, farming and such. And then you go to Judea and Jerusalem, and it's kind of rocky and, and desert-like. And you can see that Jesus spent most of his life, two-thirds or more of his life, up in Galilee. The beautiful scenes of the Sermon on the Mount and, and things like that. And then you get to Jerusalem and you see the harsh reality of Christ's uh, rejection and, and his passion and death. But it is uh, all these shrines are beautifully uh, uh, remembered and uh, they're occupied by very beautiful uh, buildings and opportunities for prayer. So it, it's a good thing. Let's take a look at our Gospel reading for today on this third Sunday in Ordinary Time, the 22nd day of January. Today's reading is from Matthew's Gospel, the fourth chapter, and after the Gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, asking for your thoughts. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and dwelt in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, toward the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every infirmity among the people. Archbishop, what are your thoughts on this gospel? Well, it's funny because it it, it fits exactly what I've just been mm-hmm. saying about the geography, you know, that Jesus uh, withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth to live at Capernaum by the sea. <laughs> and... Uh, even uh, the, what the prophet had uh, said in Isaiah about these places. And then the call of Peter and Andrew, the fishermen on the shores of Lake Galilee, and these, the Sea of Galilee, and then these other apostles there, and then teaching in their synagogues, uh, proclaiming 
the kingdom. I mean, these are the kind of sites that we've just visited. So once you've been there, I guess I'm doing a little commercial here for Holy Land, but uh, it makes it a, it's, it's a great meditation to see these places and to think that these were the places where our Lord lived and where he performed his ministry. All of a sudden, the gospel comes alive for you. It's almost as if you can be inserted in the gospel because you've been to these places then, huh? Yes, indeed. Uh, You get a feel for the reality of what transpired. You know, Jesus is not an idea, and the gospel is not just some kind of uh, fiction. But it's, it's very concrete that our Lord really became one of us in all things but sin that he lived a life in a given place and time and with people and, and interacted with them, uh, you know. Some people have been telling me, some priests and others, that I should watch this uh, series called The Chosen. It's a web series. You know, yeah. It appears on the web. And uh, I started to watch part one, and it's very engaging. Uh, and it obviously creates a drama about the life of Christ, but it tries to be very uh, faithful to the historical circumstances and the gospel. And uh, I did, as I say, watch a couple of those, and it's very, uh, I think it's very engaging. It's very popular. A lot of uh, people watch it, and I'm very happy for that. But it gives you some sense, too, of the the reality, you know, of of life in these places in the Holy Land and, and, and a very plausible way of how our Lord's life would have unfolded in the midst of that time and place. Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, James and John. They leave what they are doing. They leave their nets. They leave their father and they follow him. What will it take today to have such an immediate and positive response to Jesus' invitation to follow him today? Well, there are people who do, certainly. People who, uh, in a dramatic kind of way, take to heart what our Lord is saying. Uh, and But each of us in our state in life is called to, to follow him and... Uh, for every person, it's different, but we have to make that very central in our life. Not necessarily leaving what you're doing, but nonetheless following closely the call of Jesus to be attached to him in somehow, some way. Absolutely. Archbishop, let's take a look at some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners. For instance, Sam from Cheshire says, Among Catholics, there is a difference of opinion about how one should receive Holy Communion. We have the option of receiving communion in the hand in the United States, but from what I understand, the universal law of the Latin rite is that we receive communion on the tongue. Is receiving on the tongue better than on the hand? Is there a big difference between the two? Well, I have to say, Sam, that you've thrown me for a loop here. I never, I would not think of it being the universal law of the Latin Church that we receive communion on the tongue. I think the universal law of the Latin Church today makes provision for either. I think maybe what you mean is that it used to be the universal law of the Latin rite that we we do this, but right now that would no longer be the case. In other words, receiving communion on the hand is not some kind of exception to the law. It is part of the current current norm. It is true, though, that the, the law is that you can receive either way. In one way is not necessarily better or make you holier than receiving in another way. Yeah, certainly. Maria from Windsor says, My three sisters and I have always teased my mother about showing favoritism to one of us over the other. Her response is always, It's only right. Even Jesus loved one disciple more than the rest. I always thought that was a smart reply, 
But now that I am older and have read more of the Bible, I see there is a reference to one of his disciples as the one Jesus loved. Who was that disciple, and is there any reason given as to why one was loved more than the other? Well, Jesus had circles of intimacy with people, you know. Uh, He had uh, an inner core where Peter, James, and John were the ones that accompanied him, for example, at the Transfiguration. So he had uh, a large uh, large group of disciples. Then he had, well, even further, the crowd. And then those were really disciples. Then he had the apostles. Then among the apostles, he had uh, those who were closer to him, Peter, James, and John. And then, you know, St. Peter being designated the way he was. I guess there was kind of a special kinship uh, intimacy between Jesus and John. Let's put it this way, that within that uh, within that fold of people, he didn't choose some to the exclusion of others, but rather it was just a, a, a level of intimacy that he had with them about disclosing himself and who he was. And I think this is a very human thing for us, too. This is true of every per- person. Uh, we have some people that we're closer to in one way or another, or to whom we turn for more advice than others. Uh, doesn't mean that the other people aren't important, but uh, it, that's just a natural human human thing. Yeah, yeah because we, remember, Jesus is true God and true man. His humanity is is real. And so we mustn't think that in this great mystery of being true God and true man, that somehow his humanity is, is just uh, totally obliterated. It's not at all. Archbishop, how do you answer Ruth from Canton, who says, do devotions to Mary and praying the Divine Mercy Chaplet have any biblical foundation? Well, certainly. I mean, the Hail Mary prayer, for example, is based on the uh, the angel's greeting to her. It's profoundly uh, biblical. Uh, and by the way, we talked earlier about Pope Benedict. Pope Benedict wrote beautifully about uh, the about Mary in the context of um, the Old Testament, about her, her as the you know the virgin daughter, the daughter of Zion. And uh, divine mercy, need, needless to say, it's all biblical language. It's all it's part of the, the mysteries that are revealed in the scriptures. Joel from Madison has an interesting question. Pope John XXIII added St. Joseph to the canon of the Mass in 1962. Several years ago, St. Joseph was also added to the Eucharistic prayers 2, 3, and 4. What was the reason for adding St. Joseph to these prayers? Well, I assume it was the same reason for adding him to the Eucharistic prayer. In 1962, there was no uh, Eucharistic prayer 2, 3, and 4. So (laughs) I guess when they composed them and then uh, the Pope thought, well, as much as St. Joseph is now part of the Eucharistic prayer that we had been using, he should also be added to, to the new ones. And so he was. Alyssa from Berlin says, The Church recently returned to ordinary time. Since the term ordinary most often means something that's not special or distinctive, many people think that ordinary time refers to parts of the calendar of the Catholic Church that are unimportant. Can you clarify the real meaning of ordinary time? Well, Alyssa, I <laughs> I, I, don't know that I agree that, that just because something is ordinary that it's unimportant I would say that 90% of life is ordinary, but that doesn't mean it's unimportant. Uh, Ordinary time simply means, as you state, that there's nothing special or distinctive about it. It's just the routine of of life as it's lived, 
And, uh, but that doesn't mean that it's not important. I remember, because I was on the committee about these translations, we, we, we must have spent 15 minutes uh, trying to think, is there a, a different way of saying ordinary time from the Latin? And we all agreed that there was just, uh, I think in the, in the Latin, as I recall, just says per annum. It means through the year. We thought that ordinary time was a, a good way to, to express that, to continue to express, because that was the existing translation, that there's nothing particularly special or distinctive about it, but that doesn't mean that it's unimportant. But when you think of what we celebrate during ordinary time, it's basically the life of Jesus in the ordinary course. Instead of celebrating, for instance, his nativity or celebrating his resurrection, we're celebrating the time throughout the spectrum of his, his life. Well, today is an ordinary day, but that doesn't mean it's not filled with, uh, I mean, Something I could special. be dead. Yeah. I could be, I, could, I mean, I, or I could have a, some awful thing happen to me. It, it's, it's life. It just, it's, it's ordinary life. That doesn't mean it's not important. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close our program with a prayer and a blessing? Lord, as we continue to move into this new year of the year 2023, we ask your blessing upon us, our, our nation, and our world, that this year may witness an end to the grave conflict in Ukraine and to the many other places in the world that are suffering from war and violence, from poverty and injustice. And we pray that we may be instruments of peace. We may be instruments of justice. We may be instruments of charity. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We uh, look forward to joining you again next week when I'm sure our uh, listeners will have some other interesting questions to put to you. Until then, enjoy this week. Thank you. You too.